Hey, deserving listeners. Today I'm going to answer patron emails. It's one of my favorite things to do, and let's get to it. This first email is from patron Kiko. She writes, I am officiating at my best friend's wedding coming up soon. I loved what you said on adaptability regarding Erica and Stephanie on 90 Day Fiancé. Could you give me a quick sentence on why adaptability in a relationship, especially a marriage, is important? What role does being adaptable play in a marriage? End of email. The first thing I'll say to patron Kiko is I think you emailed me this several months ago. So I'm guessing the wedding has already passed and I am too late to provide any kind of help. And I apologize for that. Second thing I'll say is officiating at a wedding can be wonderful. I have officiated before, and it is both terrifying and wonderful and highly gratifying. I recently decided I'm never going to do it again because I am not great on stage. I am very nervous as a person on stage, and it, although there's a lot of prose and a lot of meaning and a lot of – um, wonderfulness that comes from officiating. I, the nervousness is too much for me, so I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> the third thing I'll say is about adaptability. And I don't remember what I said during the reaction video of 90 Day Fiancé with Eric and Stephanie, but what I'll say is, is that adaptability is more of a result or an outcome than a quality, meaning that couples do a lot of things that result in being adaptive or being you know, having adaptability. And let me explain. Off the top of my head, the deeper qualities that a individual or a couple will dedicate themselves to or skills that they'll have are uh, the following that will result in an outcome of adaptability. So being humble, having humility, meaning that you understand that your point of view isn't the point of view. You understand that your perspective is not the perspective. You understand that maybe sometimes you get things wrong. This is an important quality to have or value to have as a couple in order to be able to adapt. Because if you're really rigid on your point of view, if each person is very rigid and not open to the notion that maybe their point of view isn't exactly accurate or rational, then you know, it doesn't lend itself to being adaptive to the situation. And by being adaptive, what we mean is – the ability to adjust based on what's happening rather than being rigid to your initial knee-jerk reaction. Uh, being self-reflective, having self-awareness, being aware of your attachment needs and you're aware of your attachment reactivity. These are very important qualities to have that will result in being adaptive and research shows this. Knowing how your mood or your distress level affects your perspective and behavior. Giving each other the benefit of the doubt. This is very important. In the middle of a fight, if you can remember one thing, it's my partner probably is right if I understood everything that they were experiencing. Because often in fights, there's this assumption that your partner is, a, is being ridiculous and stupid and wrong in, in so many different ways. But that usually is wrong. <laughs> usually, both people are right given where they're coming from. Another important quality is to communicate your attachment needs effectively and fully without accusation or contempt. Very, very important. So these are the things that result in adaptive relationships. And even if your the wedding is coming up in the future, I can't imagine distilling all that down to something that will be interesting to a crowd at a wedding. <laughs> Because as a person who's a, I mean, I'm a marriage therapist and an expert on marriage, and I will try to integrate that into my officiating because, you know, it is part of who I am and I feel like it should be mentioned. You know, by the way, I'm a marriage therapist. And so if you want to avoid coming into my office or offices of people like me, then let me provide you with the following tips. And so I'll usually do that, but, you know, it, it's a wedding and it, it, the couple rarely remembers anything you said anyway because they're so nervous because they're on stage. So um, maybe you'd go to therapy would be the most important thing to say. Anyway, going on to another email, patron from the UK says, I am looking for some information on co-parenting with an ex-partner who displays narcissistic personality disorder, avoidant attachment, etc., it has been 11 years since our split, 
and I have done a lot of shadow work on myself, and nothing seems to help with communicating with him. So just chiming in here, shadow work usually refers to Jungian therapy where you work on your dark side, if you will. Anyway, so this person is saying, I've been to a lot of therapy. It's been 11 years since our split. My ex-husband is a problem. We have have trouble communicating with him. Going on with the email, we have a 13-year-old son with complex special needs. As our son has communication issues, I rely on information from his father during and in between Sunday visits, which are very inconsistent. So just chiming in here. When you have, it sounds like the child with special needs will visit father on Sundays and the parents are having a hard time communicating about what's happening going on with the email. We have had several government agencies involved to no avail. Just chiming in here. I'm guessing that maybe Child Protective Services, whatever the version of that in the UK there is, or lawyers or whatever, therapy, you know, something like that. Anyway, going out the email. I feel as though I am constantly fighting a losing battle and that I'm supposed to suck it up and get on with it. Any advice on co-parenting with him would be greatly appreciated. End of email. Yeah, tough situation. There's a lot to say. But in brief, it's important to clarify what you're asking, which is fine. But what you're asking is, how do I influence my ex-husband, whom I have a terrible relationship with, to be a better parent? That's really what you're asking. When people ask me this question, it's like, well, how do I co-parent? Well, really what you're asking, if we were to dig down deeper, is... I see problems in my ex-husband and the way that he parents, and I want to influence that, and he's not accepting my influence. Now, it's also possible on another level, patron from the UK, you all also are asking, no, really, I am just looking to collaborate with him. I don't necessarily want to influence him per se, but I, I want some communication with him. And yeah, okay, those two. So those are the two levels that I would really try to clarify. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to influence your ex or wanting to influence your current partner on how they parent. There's nothing wrong with that. So tips are obviously going to couples therapy would be in order. Uh, you can even go to individual therapy and talk about strategies as an individual. A lot of people don't utilize this. People will come to me with this very problem. They'll say like, well, I tried couples therapy, but my husband refuses to go, so I'm here out of desperation. And as a therapist, as a relational therapist, I can do a lot of good work with individuals affecting the relationship uh, that doesn't actually come into my office. So I can strategize with uh, this person, the, this patron, to say like, okay, well, here's here's one way to look at it. Here's one thing to do. Here's Here's some principles to follow as you interact and that kind of thing. But the the main thing here that is potentially impossible to achieve is that you need to have a friendly relationship with your ex. To co-parent, you must sustain a, a cordial working relationship with that person. And by the time people will email me or contact me clinically around this, like for you, patron, it's been 11 years, and it sounds like you've had a lot of conflict before and after the split. And to have a contemptuous relationship with each other basically means it's nearly impossible to co-parent because the there's ideas that each of you have probably built up about each other that are not conducive to working with each other. We all understand that parenting is a very complex job. Even when the parents love each other, when the parents don't love each other and don't live with each other and have problems with each other, then we're looking at a very difficult job. And that so uh, building a friendship with your ex is 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 probably going to work. Now, if your ex was abusive to you, you might be like, "But I don't want to be friends with him." Then I'll say, "Okay, that's totally fine." But it's going to be hard to co-parent. The thing I tell people is 
there's a part of you, I'm sure, that wants to just have that ex-husband drop off the face of the earth. Your earth, your life would be much easier and much better in a lot of ways. But you are eternally connected to that ex because you have a child together and because you're connected and because that parent has just as many rights as you do. You might have to sacrifice some preferences in order to sustain a friendship with that person so that you can co-parent effectively. But that's a choice that everyone has to make for themselves, and I, I don't have any uh, right or knowledge enough to be able to say whether or not a campaign of friendliness is worth it or not. The other thing is is allowing him to have some power. Uh, some primary custodial parents will establish all these rules and routines, and then the, the non-primary custodial, which is your ex, because your ex only sees the, the kid on Sundays, a lot of times what will happen is the, the, shall I say, the primary parent will impose their rule system on the non-primary parent. And the, the secondary parents will sometimes have a problem with that. And so some consideration has to be made to allow both people to have power. And that's all in line with trying to develop a friendly relationship with this person. Now, having said all that, like I said, this might be an impossible goal, meaning that there's nothing you can do. You could do everything perfectly, and it still might not work, which you know, patron from the UK, will result in damage for your child. Your child has probably already been damaged by this process, which, of course, as a parent, you're going to feel tremendous shame and tremendous pain and empathy for your own child. But it's not your fault. If you're doing everything you can and it's not working and there's still damage for your child and you've involved all these you know, government agencies and whatnot and nothing has worked, then you might just have to, as you say, suck it up and get on with it. Because I hear this a lot from parents. They'll just say like, well, so I'm just supposed to, I'm just supposed to, you know, uh, do nothing. I'm just supposed to put up with it. I'm just supposed to grin and bear it. And the answer to that is, I don't know. But if fighting the situation results in more suffering, then you're just creating more suffering. The situation might be inherently damaging to your child, regardless of anything you do. And as a parent, that's hard to realize. It's hard to accept that damage can happen to your child and you don't have any power over it. It's good that parents feel responsible. It's good that parents feel some shame when their child is damaged. It's good that parents feel like they have the power to influence the damage or you know benefits to their own child. It's good that parents feel that. But in some situations, that assumption will create more tension for you, more bad moods for you, more less capacity for you to parent your kid when you are around your kid. And so sometimes a campaign of acceptance is at hand. But I don't know the answer to that for you. That's something that you would explore on your own. Now, some other things you can do are get your kid into therapy. There's a lot of clients that I've worked with similar to this where a parent will bring in a kid and say, look, uh, I, they have uh, – uh, my ex-partner is damaging to this kid and I feel like my, ther- my kid needs to be in therapy. And so there are things a therapist can do to mitigate the damage, emotional regulation, validation, these kinds of things, corrective experiences. So there's that. The other thing you can do is just do your best when you do have the kid to mitigate the, the damage without putting your child in a bind. Children want to love both of their parents or all of their parents, all of their caregivers. They Children don't want to be put in a situation usually where they have to choose one parent or over the other. So you don't want to triangulate your kid by saying things like, I know that your dad is a terrible parent, you know, so blah, blah, blah. Like that puts the child in a bind. However, there are things you can do without putting your child in a bind. Like say the kid comes home and starts saying bad things about themselves, things that they've internalized from the ex-husband, from your ex-husband. Well, you can certainly do a lot to mitigate that by saying, you know, you know, where'd you get that from? Well, dad said that I'm terrible at school or something. 
And without saying something like, well, your dad is an idiot, you can say something like, well, you know what? That's your dad's opinion, and here's my opinion. I believe that you're good at school, you know, th- those kinds of things. Like I said, it's not necessarily going to take away the damage, but it might help a little bit. There's a lot of little things you can do along that, along those lines. So, But like I said, if there is a possibility of creating a friendly working relationship with a person that you have deep hatred for on the inside – then that's the campaign you want to go on, and it takes a long time. Like you said, it was 11 years of a split. You've involved government agencies, which I'm guessing were very contentious between you and your ex-husband. So you have a lot of bad blood between each other. So it might be another 11 years before you establish a friendly relationship with your ex, but that is potentially worth it because – the co-parenting doesn't end when your child turns 18, believe me. So if it's possible and and it's not damaging to you, then that would be something to consider. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is interesting from listener Alexa. She writes, is it normal to adjust yourself to others' likings, meaning that with each new relationship, you act differently with them? End of email. So, yeah, this is an interesting question. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, case-by-case situations we would want to look at. So I'll give two different general things. One is is that it can be a problem, right, that – well, maybe I should start with the other side. So there's nothing wrong with adjusting yourself so that other people like you. People do this all the time. Uh, We all do this. And to to say that – people don't do it or confident people don't do it is ridiculous. We all do this and we should do it, right? If, for example, in my personal life with my friends, we swear all the time, F-bombs, S-bombs, I mean, terrible swearing. Me and my wife, me and my friends, uh, we swear terribly. I mean, it is, it, 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 if, we talk, if, if our parents heard us talking this way, they would gasp. Now, we don't do it out of shock value. It's just the way that we talk. It's, it's, I don't know. It's just the way that we talk and the way me and my friends have always talked with each other. And so, so I, but I adjust my language to my, the people I'm with. If I'm around my parents or because my parents hardly swear at all, my parents are very wholesome people and, I didn't I heard throughout my childhood I heard my parents swear once each and it was at the exact same time we came home from an outing like dinner or something my whole family and we walked in the door and the dog had vomited on every single couch cushion there were there were you know three different couches in our living room and the dog had had puked on every single couch cushion and these were cloth couch cushions you know they weren't vinyl or leather where it would be easily washed. And so my my dad said, what the hell? And my mom said, that damn dog. <laughs> and so I, you know, I saw the puke on all the couches and I was like very shocked. But then I was a hundred times more shocked when I heard both my parents use a swear. So around my parents, I don't swear or I try not to anyway. <laughs> And when I'm around other people at work or clients or children or you, uh, some of you long-term listeners might have known in the old days when I and other people on this podcast would swear liberally, maybe not a ton, but at least at times. And I've gotten enough feedback from people, not a lot. Um, in fact, I actually sent an, um, a survey out to everyone asking how they felt about swearing and most people were positive about it, and, and a few people were negative about it. But most people were positive. But I thought, you know what, pros versus cons, I'd rather not alienate the few people who don't like it or are listening with their kids or just have different sensibilities about swearing. And so I've been trying to curb that. Um, and I've, I've told the other co-hosts, actually, to curb it as well uh, because – you know, they don't know the policies of this podcast. <laughs> and so uh, so you might have heard Bob swear a little bit more recently and because I just didn't tell him. But when I would hear him swear, I'd be like, well, should I say anything? And then I finally did. Anyway, the point is, is that I have adjusted myself to 
the likings of a minority of listeners. And I know some of you out there are like, oh, no, I like it when you swear and rant and get angry. And, and I get it. And, you know, I, I think I can be angry without using swear words. I don't have any problems with swear words. I, I have no negative valence with swear words. Um, but some people do. Anyway, the point is, is that I have adjusted myself. I've compromised who I am, so to speak, for other people's preferences. And that's a good thing. You should adjust yourself to other people's likings. If you have, I don't know, when you talk, you talk too close to people and you spit in their face occasionally on accident and someone says, stop doing that, it's okay to adjust for that, right? (laughs) Now, if you're in a relationship where your spouse is exhibiting preferences like, well, I like my, my wife to be quiet and stupid, and you start to adjust to be very quiet and stupid, you act stupid in order to appeal to your husband, then that probably is not healthy overall. It might be meeting someone's preferences, but it's suppressing so much of who you are as a person that, one, that's unfair to you, and two, your partner probably doesn't really want you to do that. I've been with a lot of clients through situations like this, and there's this assumption when you are abused growing up or mistreated sufficiently such that you develop this policy of pleasing others. There's a whole schema of pleasing others, right? That there's this assumption for people with that schema that if I don't please other people, then I'm going to get rejected and other people are going to get angry with me, which is very scary to me. But when I work with people on this, the opposite is actually true, that yes, in the short term, by being very pleasing, your partner is likely at at the very least to not be angry at you. But no one wants to be involved with someone who isn't there. Even people who have rigid preferences, you know, take, take a husband who has very rigid preferences and take a wife who is overly pleasing. Well, in the short term, the rigid husband wants his wife to be compliant, so to speak, and pleasing and very non-rigid, shall we say, to their own preferences. So in the short term, the husband wants that. But in the long term, the husband does not want that. And the husband will often express this. They will feel like their wife isn't really there. They'll feel like their wife doesn't really participate. They'll feel very unloved by their wife because their wife is always behind a wall of, of pleasing everyone that the wife isn't viscerally involved in the relationship and the husband feels that. So, so you know, it's case-by-case case basis, but that's what I will say to that question. And let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. A couple announcements here. One is is that we have accepted a bunch of applications for the uh, $2,000 scholarship that we're giving out. We've given out a number of scholarships over the years, and uh, we're proud to give out another scholarship. The reason why we're giving out the scholarship is because we met another Patreon goal. And so all you patrons who became patrons, uh, part of the money that you, you know, dedicate to this podcast is – given out in the form of, of scholarships and other charities. We, we're also uh, currently in the process of reviewing applications for an art grant of $1,000. I think someone actually tacked on a couple hundred dollars uh, anonymously as well to that art grant. So we're giving out thousands of dollars to people, and the applications are already in, So and the deadline is passed. So um, if you want to apply to a future uh, art grant or scholarship, just stay tuned for that. But uh, look for announcements on Facebook and Instagram. If, if you're not following us on Facebook and or Instagram, that's where we do all all those kinds of announcements. And so please do that. Um, or maybe we'll post it on YouTube and that kind of thing. There's a lot of things that go on with the podcast that I don't talk about necessarily in the audio version of the podcast. So if you want to stay abreast of things, um, again, I would follow us on social media. We don't really do a lot on Twitter. I don't know why. I just don't really like Twitter that much personally. (laughs) 
Um, Instagram seems to be the place where everyone is, and so I just go there. Anyway, next email. Upper tier patron, he says, my wife recently told me that she needed space. I know that the usual logic is to just back off and give her the space. However, she's been really snarky and angry the past week or so. So my question is, do I continue to give her the space or do I make sure she knows how much I love and appreciate her without being needy? End of email. So it's hard to know. Generally speaking, if someone says they need space, you want to give them space uh, to use any excuse to invade that space, even if it's coming from a loving place, can be very, very hurtful to the person saying that they need space. So uh, consider that. Obviously, I can't give you direct advice because I'd have to be treating you and know all the nuances. And, and even then, I wouldn't tell you what to do. I would just lay out the factors that you should consider. Uh, so that's one thing I would say. The next thing I would say is if you desperately need to say something, you could just say something like over a text or you know whatever it is that is non-invasive to the person and just say something like, so I just want to let you know that I really love you and I want to give you space and I'm going to give you space. But I just want to tell you that I really love you and I miss you and it hurts my feelings when you're snarky and angry with me. But you don't need to respond. I'm just throwing it out there. And if you don't want me to do this anymore, feel free to tell me to be quiet and I'll give you space. So there's that. The other thing is is that this sounds like it's in the midst of a lot of conflict. And obviously going to therapy is is at hand because, you know, should I give her space? She's being snarky, but I really want to tell her how much I love her. This is kind of a micro situation that is probably uh, – this looks like the tip of the iceberg is what I'm saying. <laughs> There's, you probably have much bigger fish to fry than whether or not you should give her space this week. Um, the fact that she's asking for space, the fact that um, she's being angry with you is probably indicative of an ongoing pretty significant relationship problem that needs to be addressed in therapy. Okay, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from a patron. They ask, could you talk about people-pleasing, agreeableness, and why for some saying no, being assertive causes anxiety, fear of rejection, and loss? End of email. Yeah, so this is in line with what I was talking about before, but just to uh, answer this nuance of what I was talking about earlier. So you're saying that you know someone is pleasing, they're very agreeable, and when they want to say no – and be assertive, this causes them anxiety and fear of rejection and loss. And yeah, so we grow up in a you know constant push and pull of this is what I want, this is what you want, how is this going to work out? Especially when we're very young. You know, an infant or a let's just take a four-year-old. A four-year-old wants constant attention for the most part. They want uh, sweets and cookies. They want toys. They want you to play with them. They want to be able to throw objects at their siblings' heads. They don't want you to pay attention to their siblings. You know, I'm exaggerating, but there's a, you know, kids have a lot of wants. Now, four-year-olds also have wants for, uh, to give to other people. They have wants that they have altruistic wants at that age as well. But the four-year-old is extremely dependent. And, you know, four-year-olds don't go to their den and browse the internet for eight hours. <laughs> four-year-olds are, as if you have a four-year-old, pretty much 99% of the time oriented towards you as a parent. And you... Uh, are in conflict sometimes with that. Sometimes your four-year-old wants something from you and you're perfectly free and you actually want to give that child what they want. But other times you can't. Other times you have to go number two or you have to go to work. Or during pandemic, you have to lock yourself in your office and go to a Zoom call and your kid can't come in. So there is this constant push and pull between this is what I want and this is what other people want. Now, in a healthy family and a, 
a situation where the parents, the, the caregivers are healthy enough or supported enough or non-traumatized enough as parents so that they can navigate that um, push and pull throughout the day in a way that the child is damaged not very much because there's always damage that happens to kids. This notion of like, how do I parent in a way that doesn't damage my kids is ridiculous. All parents damage their kids. That's why therapists exist around the world. It's just a matter of like, well, how much damage are you going to do to your kids is always the thing. And I know that's sad, but it's how I see things. I don't know a single person who doesn't have some damage from their parents. I don't know a single person who doesn't need at least five years of therapy to recover from wh however little damage that they did get from their parents. So uh, the if the parents are good enough, then the kid will navigate that and, and will go into adulthood with a mostly oh, uh, mostly uh, a good ability to navigate assertiveness. Now, what is assertiveness? Well, assertiveness is the ability to know what you want and generally a good gauge of what other people want and a good ability to communicate, work that out with the other person so that you as an individual can determine what's fair. This is what, you know, I want us to go on a road trip, but my wife wants to stay home. I could go by myself, but that would seem mean. So I want to talk to my wife and, you know, we need to work this out. What does she want? What do I want? Is there another way to do this? Maybe at the end of the day, I just say, you know what? I'm going to go on a road trip by myself, even though you don't want me to go, because to me, it's that important to me. Assertiveness is the ability to, to navigate that effectively so that both people don't feel like they're getting ripped off. So, and it doesn't always work out, but as a kid, if you are treated in such a way that you believe that when you're assertive or when you even bring up your needs, you're harmed in some way, either through abuse or withdrawal, emotional withdrawal, then you as a kid have a complex about being assertive. You have a complex about asserting your own needs. You have a complex about trying to figure out what other people want. You are afraid to assert yourself because you're afraid the other person is going to punish you because of it. You might also be uh, not very good at predicting what other people want because you didn't have enough practice growing up in a unanxious relationship to develop skills to mentalize and to read other people's minds, essentially. And so as an adult, when it comes up and you're like, well, wait, I, I, want, to assert a, I want to assert my needs right now, but some, something bad could happen because in the past, something bad always does happen. So... That's what I'll say to that. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from patron Lisa from Ireland. She writes, short version of this question is, what is a healthy level of wanting external validation? I was listening to the recent episode about narcissistic parents, and something in it had me feeling pretty anxious about what you said. You talked about how narcissists need a lot of regular validation from other people. My attachment style trends pretty strongly towards fearful avoidant, and I find myself feeling somewhat something like that. I like external validation and often crave it. It had me wondering, oh God, what if I'm narcissistic? Or is it more a question of flavor of validation that someone wants? I'm so great versus I'm actually not terrible. End of email. That's a great question. So the question that you want to ask yourself, everyone out there, if you have uh, wonder if you're narcissistic is one, listen to my deep dive on narcissistic personality disorder that's available to patrons. That'll help you to get a gauge as to whether or not you're on the narcissistic spectrum. Some people will say, if you have to ask the question, am I narcissistic, then it means you're not narcissistic because narcissistic people would never think they're narcissistic. And that's both wrong and right. If you're severely narcissistic, then yeah, in all likelihood, you're, you're going to have a hard time evaluating yourself in that way. But there are plenty of people who are on the spectrum who absolutely can identify themselves and say like, yeah, you know what, I am, I am kind of on that spectrum. Um, I will admit that I am partially on that spectrum. I, I would 
I've evaluated myself as like 5% on the, on the spectrum where say the most narcissistic person, you know, in the world is at a hundred percent. I'm at 5%. Unberto, my co-host, uh, we have labeled him at being at like 15%. So what, what does that mean? Well, it means that the person is oriented in such a way that when they feel secure or when they feel insecure at attachment wise or just in the world, they will tend to look towards solutions of grandiosity as a way of feeling secure. And the way that you seek that information often is through validation, external validation. You can even insist on it by making sure everyone understands that you're the best and that no one else is better or by becoming very good at things so that other people have, you know, there's no argument that you're the best and you might avoid things in which you will not be the best at because you need to be the best. You might also talk a lot in, rela in, re in relationships. You might talk a lot in conversations because you're oriented toward yourself and you're, you're, you're looking for attention in that way, that external validation and that, that craving of it. So there's nothing wrong with that, right? We understand why people do that. It's because they're trying to make up for missed attention or missed self-esteem growing up, or there was some incursion on one's self-esteem growing up that caused them to need to resort to that as a fantasy of I'm awesome, when in reality, deep down, I feel like I'm terrible. So you, you want to try to figure that out and obviously go to therapy to figure that out. And if you are in the narcissistic spectrum, then awareness of that will help a lot and will help with your parenting. So that's the key. It's also possible that your orientation towards craving external validation has nothing to do with a narcissistic spectrum and has to do with some other schema. That's what I also recommend is sometimes it's a lot easier to evaluate oneself not on personality disorder spectra, but on schema spectra. So listen to all the episodes on schema therapy. If you're a patron, there's, I don't know, there's a handful of them. And it's powerful because in a lot of ways, personality disorder conceptualizations are a little too flavored, if you will, to use your word, Lisa, in that narcissistic personality is really a conglomeration or a constellation of issues. Whereas schema therapy has 18 different schemas that are all teased out. And so you can, you can have a little bit of this schema and a lot of this schema and a, and a little bit of this third schema. And sometimes that coincides with a personality disorder, you know, constellation, but sometimes it doesn't, you know, sometimes you can have entitlement, for example, which is a part of narcissism, but you don't have the grandiosity of narcissism. And so Sometimes it's better to – it's more specific and sometimes a lot more useful to think in terms of schema therapy than to think in terms of narcissism. All right. Let's go on to another email here. This person, anonymous patron, writes, you talk a lot about childhood traumas. Is it possible to get to adulthood without any childhood traumas? I feel that we all probably have some negative issues that come from our childhood experiences. End of email. Yeah. This is right in line with what I was saying earlier, that in, in terms of the usage that I use the word trauma for, you know, some people reserve the word trauma for watching someone die in front of you while you're on the battlefield or being sexually abused at the age of five or being physically beaten almost to death by your older brother or something. These are traumas, obviously. But I, when I use trauma, I use a broader term, which can be applied to you are four years old and you're left in the crib crying during a nap time and you're terrified and you feel very sad and your parents don't come to you. They hear you crying, but they don't come to you either because they don't care or more likely because they were told by society that they needed to force you to cry it out to, you know, get, make it so that you understand who's boss, that kind of thing. I'm not saying what you're supposed to do as a parent, but at the very least, that is traumatic for a four-year-old child. The child is wailing and afraid and feels very alone and is 
desperate for the comfort of their parents, and their parents don't arrive. And the message is clear that the parents do not care enough about your emotions and your distress to come to your aid. That's traumatic. Now, some traumas are necessary or are a you know, sort of natural, um, I don't know, residual or sort of add-on to what it's like to be a child. When, when you're a child, you have your wants and you don't really understand that there's an outside world and that other things are at play. Like, you know, everyone is staying up all night and they're all watching TV, but it's bedtime for you. It's 8 o'clock and it's time to go down to bed. And you're like, but I don't want to go to bed. I want to stay up and watch uh, Love Boat with everyone else. And your family's like, no, it, you need to go to sleep. Now, your parents might even say, look, if you don't get your sleep, you're going to be in a bad mood tomorrow. And there's going to be a lot of bad health effects of not getting enough sleep. So this is for your own good. But, you know, the child is, can't really hear that and is, is just feeling like their needs are being denied and that no one understands. And you put the, and the child cries and has a meltdown and, and you say, well, now it's time for a timeout or whatever. Or you put the kid to bed and the kid goes to bed feeling pretty bad. But, you know, that's what are you going to do? Let the kid stay up all night? That's, that's not an option for, for the most part. And so now there's parenting practices where you actually don't have bedtime. You just sort of naturally do things and the kid will just naturally fall asleep. I won't get into that. But anyway, the point is, is that there are some inherent difficult moments for children that they will go through that they won't that you just can't mitigate you just can't avoid and those are traumatic as well meaning that the child has a very bad emotional moment and feels very hurt and it it is amplified by the fact that they can't really soothe themselves yet and they don't have an adult or at least an older child's perspective on the matter and they're very devastated by it and so those are also traumas. And so your question, anonymous patron, is, is it possible to get to adulthood without any childhood traumas? Well, according to my definition of the term trauma, the answer is no. Everyone, as I said earlier with another email, uh, is damaged as they're growing up. It's just a matter of how much are you damaged. So anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. He writes, My question is around the psychology of home wreckers, i.e. people who demonstrate a pattern where they find themselves often attracted to others in relationships. I definitely find this issue and theorize that it's most likely due to having an avoidant attachment style and subconsciously attempting to aim to get to people in relationships to meet my attachment needs with a much lower possibility of getting into a relationship and consequently hurt as a result of said relationship. I could be completely wrong, so I'd be keen to hear the theories behind this. End of email. So it sounds to me, anonymous patron, that you're saying that you are attracted to people in relationships and that people from the outside might label you as a home wrecker. I don't know, but it's, I don't know if that was a Freudian slip there, but that's what it sounds like you're saying. I don't know. Anyway, so... I don't know that there is a personality profile of a quote-unquote homewrecker. This is something that's often talked about on the internet and in popular culture. You know, she's a homewrecker, this kind of thing. Now, I imagine that there would be a lot of different reasons why this would happen. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize is that homewreckers are not the people who wreck the home. It is the person who is cheating who is wrecking the home. So if, for example, you know, I'm married to my wife, if someone came to me and hit on me and I reciprocated and I developed a relationship with this other woman uh, and consequently I got a divorce, that would not be uh, on the other person's fault, on the, you know, the mistress, if you will. It's not the mistress' fault that I decided to cheat and get a divorce. So we often as a society will blame the outside person. Now, 
it's not cool. <laughs> it's not ethical to hit on someone who is married because you are inherently harming the other partner, right? But most of the blame should be placed on me because I should have not reciprocated and told this potential mistress to hit the curb. And it's not hard for married people to do that <laughs> and just make a choice. Now, in some, a lot of examples that we'll hear about, they, the person in my position is actually not happy about the marriage to begin with. And so this incursion of the mistress actually just provides an excuse to get out of a marriage that they didn't want to be in in the first place. So a lot of times that will happen. So, you know, that's one thing I'll say. But you're asking as to, you know, what's the profile, this, the psychological personality profile of a homewrecker, of the mistress or the, the, the dude mistress? It's funny that we don't have really a name for the dude mistress. Anyway, what's the profile of that person? Well, I, could, I can imagine a lot of profiles, and I, I don't have any research in front of me. I, I doubt there is much research in this area, and much, I doubt there's much definitive research in this area. But yeah, certainly one profile that you point out I have seen as well, which is that some people are attracted to married or coupled individuals because they are afraid of relationships that will harm them. So if you believe, if you have a working relation, if you have a working model that you're unlovable or that other people can't be trusted, but you still have this need to have att romantic attachments, one of the ways that you can get your needs met without having to worry about it is to get involved with people who are inherently not good partners. So this could be a married person, or it could be someone who is known to be a philanderer, or someone who doesn't live in your town, or someone who just comes across as a, as a D-bag or something. And you know subconsciously, look, this relationship is doomed to begin with. So I'm not putting a lot at risk here because this relationship will never work out. And I basically understand that. So when this relationship doesn't work out because they never work out, and I assume this relationship is the same, then I, I can tell myself, well, I knew it was never going to work out. Whereas if I get involved with someone who is not married and isn't a known flanderer, then if, if the relationship doesn't work out because it won't work out because they never work out, this is the schema at play, then this will be even more devastating because that relationship actually had a chance to work and it didn't work because of me. Whereas if I get involved with a person who can't commit to me, then I can say, well, the reason why it didn't work was because of these outside circumstances, not because of me. So yes, anonymous patron, that is one potential reason. You know, avoiding attachment is one style, but basically it's any insecure attachment style uh, can result in, in having this be an attractive option uh, romantically. And we see a lot of people do this, by the way. It's not just, you know, getting involved with married people, but like I said, it's getting involved with people who have a pattern of not committing to people or whatever. Maybe someone who's very young and at a life stage that you just don't predict that they're going to want to commit to you, that kind of thing. Or someone that is uh, out of your league, so to speak, someone that you just predict that this person will never settle down with me, that kind of stuff. But there are other profiles of quote-unquote homewreckers, like someone who is trying to recreate a past relationship. So if your parents were cheating on each other, this becomes kind of a model for what relationships should look like, and you might actually be attracted to infidelity because of that. You might actually have a desire subconsciously to ruin other people's lives because you're, someone ruined your life in some similar betrayal, and so you actually get some pleasure at ruining other people's lives. There's various other profiles I could think of as to why someone would do that. Anyway, let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is from patron Cecilia from Sacramento. She writes, I have complex PTSD, and I just got out of a relationship with a person who was abusive and manipulative. He had multiple sex partners throughout our relationship. 
He lied about every aspect of his life, including his children from a previous marriage, his successes and travels. Everything was a lie. I now go to therapy. My question is, why am I being so hard on myself for still caring about this person and believing him? And why do I feel so insecure about myself when I know that he is the one with the problem and not me? End of email. Well, the first thing I'll say is I'm glad you're going to therapy. That's music to my ears. The second thing I'll say is that you identify as someone who has complex PTSD, which means that you were traumatized in some way, shape, or form by people in your family, probably at least one of your parents. And so when we have complex PTSD, it affects our schemas of relationships and of ourselves. It uh, distorts our working model of self and our working model of others. So if you were abused, which I'm guessing you were, then you will have likely internalized that abuse, meaning that you believe that you deserved it or you believe that it was somehow justified based on who you are as a person. And when you're mistreated by your romantic partner, there's this nagging notion in your inner workings psychologically that says that there's something that you did wrong, that you deserved it, and that uh, if you were just a better person, then this wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have done that to you. You know, when you're three years old, seven years old, and you're, you're being mistreated, Children almost always, if not always, blame themselves to some level. They just can't conceive of a world in which their parents are flawed in some way. It's just hard to imagine. And so children will blame themselves. And this is one of the tragedies of being abused early in life is that the adult child, survivor of abuse as a child, will carry with them the irrational abusive messages that they internalized as children, and it will continue to abuse them. Essentially, when you abuse a child, they internalize the abuse, and then the child grows up to abuse themselves internally. The child, as an adult, will say, well, you are a bad person. You deserve this to happen to you, that kind of thing. And so awareness of that and healing from that is the key in therapy, which I'm glad that you're doing. You ask a, you ask a question here, why am I being so hard on myself for still caring about this person and believing him in the past. Well, it's normal to go through a, a grief process regarding this. You know, there's there's been a big loss in your life, a loss of the relationship, a loss of the version of the relationship you thought was happening, a loss of your own self-esteem about your own ability to monitor this sort of thing. And there's a lot of grief there, and you're going to get angry at yourself. If your spouse, you know, gets in a car wreck and breaks their leg, there's likely to be a, a phase that you go through or some feelings you go through in which you're angry at yourself for not telling your partner to be more careful on the road, that kind of thing. But most people on the outside would say, well, that's not your fault. If your partner got in a car wreck, it's, you know, it's not your fault. But it's normal to have those feelings and it's part of the grief process. And so... You know, don't beat yourself up for having feelings. It's just feelings that you have. And so you're beating yourself up for for believing him. And it's just part of the grief process. It's probably not fair to you because we uh, believe people because, I don't know, we just believe that people are good. <laughs> I'm very gullible in that way too. Um, multiple times in my life I have realized later on that I just – I just tend to believe people. I just tend to believe that people are good. I tend to believe that people are telling me the truth. I tend to believe that people are competent at their jobs. And I get burned many, many times throughout my life in terrible ways. But I don't beat myself up for it because I wasn't abused growing up. I just say like, well, geez, I guess I just can't be that gullible moving forward. And that's okay. The other thing you're saying is you're being hard on yourself for caring about this person. There's nothing wrong with caring about him. You loved him. You were involved with him. You have complicated feelings about him. You still have some attachment towards him. That's normal. That's, that's good. And you hate him and want him to drop off the face of the earth. That's okay as well. It's a mixture of feelings. Those are feelings. Feelings are good. They're okay. There's nothing wrong with how you feel. You also ask, why do I feel so insecure about myself when I know that he was the one 
with the problem and not me? Well, I answered that question earlier about the internalized abuse and all likelihood. But I would talk with your therapist about it. It's pretty complicated. And I would take it easy on yourself regarding how you feel. All right, let's go on to another email. I feel like I'm really getting to so many emails today. All right, this next email is from patron Annie from Sweden. She writes, I'm wondering about your thoughts on supporting a partner as they grieve. My boyfriend lost his younger sister earlier this year, and it was completely unexpected and traumatic. Our relationship actually ended recently. So my question is, how do you support a grieving partner when the relationship wasn't working very well to begin with because we had conflict? End of email. So it's a good question. And the way I'll answer it is to maybe answer it more generally speaking. Our, at least in my culture of Seattle, there is a, we have a pretty abysmal culture when it comes to supporting people as they grieve. And there's all these simplistic things out there being said, like one of the things, so, so in general, we avoid death in my society. And by consequence, we avoid grief. Not only do we avoid death grief, but we also, we also avoid and disenfranchise as they call it, the grief involved in other losses, like the loss of a pet or the loss of a job or the loss of an ability, this kind of thing. And, we have a problem with that, massive, massive problem with that in our society. And we need to change that. So there's that problem. And from that problem stems a lot of other problems, like when we try to be nice to our friends and family members as they grieve, we often will mess it up because we don't know what we're doing because our society doesn't talk about it much. And then what happens as a result of that is people will criticize people for trying. Like one of the things you'll see online is people will say, um, you know, I, you know, my husband died last year. And if I hear another person say thoughts and prayers, I'm going to go crazy. These kinds of things. Well, some people are so uh, uneducated and unexperienced and unsupported in their effort to be supportive to other people who are grieving, that they don't know what to do. And so they're just like, well, I, I think you're supposed to say thoughts and prayers. We shouldn't attack people for saying thoughts. Now, there's this whole other category of, of Twitter thoughts and prayers where people will say, you know, thoughts and prayers to this person who was killed by this situation. And people will strike back, slap back at them and say, we don't need your thoughts and prayers. We need your activism. Or we need, you, we need you to dedicate money to this cause or something like that, which I also kind of get. But I wish that we would stop attacking people for that because there are so many people that don't do anything. Now, the problem – so let's say that your, your husband died and, you know, heaven forbid, and you are getting a lot of people saying thoughts and prayers to you. Well – the problem is not the thoughts and prayers statements. The problem is probably you feel generally neglected by everybody. And when people say thoughts and prayers, it reminds you of the fact that no one is paying attention to you or no one, not enough people are paying attention to you. So we should probably not attack people who are trying because it's coming, the people who are doing it, uh, you know, doing something, at least they're trying to do something. They might be naive and stupid about it, but we can't blame that be, uh, on the individuals because as a society, we have done almost nothing to educate people about how to, how to help people grieve. So how do, you help, how do you help people grieve? Well, it's all about empathy and everyone's different. So essentially, you know, how do we, how do we help someone who's grieving? The specific question is, what do they need and how can you meet their needs? And are you the right person to meet their needs? You know, if you're a coworker, are you the person – that will be a shoulder to cry on? Maybe not. Maybe they don't want to cry on your shoulder. You know, So it's a very specific question to a general thing that happens to everybody. But the general advice that I say is, because it usually is what people want, is pay attention. And don't worry about how you pay attention. Don't worry about wording. Don't worry about the wording of what you say to someone. It's sort of like if you're in a marriage and you come to me and you're like, 
I'm really worried that my wife doesn't realize how much I love her. What do I say? Well, I wouldn't say to that person, well, here is the sentence that you say, right? Because that's ridiculous. What, you, what I would say is, well, you have to, you have, to have a, a general lifestyle of showing that you love this person day, day in and day out. And that can look a variety of different ways. It's the same when it comes to how do you support someone going through grief is it's not something you say. It's a campaign that you go on. It's an ongoing effort. And a big part of it is just showing that you care. So I have a friend right now who his father is potentially dying soon. And I care about my friend. And so I, every so often, as it sort of pops up into my head, I'll text him and I'll say, how's it going? You know, how's your dad doing? What are you going through? And I don't know. I'm not in his mind, but I, I imagine that he appreciates that. And he has stated as such over text. He'll say, oh, thanks for checking in. Now, I'm not carefully wording my texts. I'm not saying, okay, you know, how do I word this and that? I'm just showing that I care. And I might screw it up sometimes, and that's okay as well. But I imagine that if my heart is in the right place and I pay attention and I'm not anxious and in my head trying to figure out the right thing to say, which is kind of self-centered when you think about it, I'm I'm other centered, you know. I maybe I will make a mistake, but I, that's okay to me. It's a it's an okay risk for me to take as I reach out to this person. When I hear people going through these kinds of uh, losses, the thing that I hear the most from them is they'll say they'll they'll almost all the time they'll have the following story to tell. And you people out there who have gone through a significant loss, you probably have a very similar story to tell. And let me tell the story. They will say, so I had this tremendous loss that was all-consuming, and I had a variety of feelings, but demoralization, anxiety, preoccupied with the problem, anger, despair, just lots of different feelings. And as I was going through that, everyone knew I was going through it. But nine out of ten people either – just turned the other way or they just would send these little messages of like, hey, let me know if you need any help. And although that was fine, it the, the one out of 10 people I really appreciated, which is they wrote me a very heartfelt card talking about how they went through a difficult loss and how they felt. Or this person didn't just say, hey, let me know if you need any help. This person actually just came by and cleaned my bathroom for me because I was too depressed to clean my own bathroom. They just said, look, I'm coming over and I'm going to cook some meals for you. Is that okay? Instead of saying, do you need any help? They specifically said, I'm coming over to do this. Is is that okay with you? So those people usually have been through their own losses and they know, oh, don't just say thoughts and prayers. Don't just say, let me know if you need anything. Because, you know, when you're going through a loss like that, one, you don't want to impose on other people. And two, you don't have enough brain power to coordinate the volunteership of a bunch of people. And so other people have to step up to the plate and figure that out for themselves because they predict that the person going through the grief will will appreciate it. You don't always know that though. You can't just force this on the grieving person. You have to you have to check in. So is it okay that I'm doing this, you know, really make sure. But at the very least, something you can do if you're trying to support someone going through a loss is just reach out to them periodically. Don't just reach out and say, "Let me know if you want to talk." Like do it periodically. Now it's always hard to say because maybe for some people going through grief, they don't want to be reminded of the grief constantly. And so maybe you pick up on that and instead of checking in with them regarding the loss, you just check in with them to see how they're doing. Maybe they just want a distraction. Maybe they want to go out and you know have some drinks and f- forget about it all for a bit and you can be that person for them. So trying to gauge that. But the point is, is, One, don't be afraid to do something. And two, 
periodically do something. And three, account for the where they are at emotionally and try to get a gauge for that. So Patronani from Sweden, regardless of the fact that your relationship with your ex-boyfriend is, you know, not going so well all the time, you can do the same, you know, that he's going through this grief. You can say, hey, I just wanted to check in with you about, you know, the death of your of your sister and if you want to talk about it, how are you feeling? Or, hey, you know, do you need a distraction? Do you, do you just want to do something fun? Something along those lines. It's, it's about contact. It's about effort. It's about helping them with their needs, figuring out what their needs are, trying to predict that, asking them what they need. You could just ask, hey, just texting, just, you know, we're, do you do you want to chat? Um, do you want to talk about your sister? Do you want a distraction? What do you want? Most people are receptive to that. Now, the converse to this is if you're going through grief and people are reaching out to you and showing you effort and it's not the sort of effort that you want, be kind to those people. If someone is reaching out to you and showing you that they care, but it's not really what you want in the moment – then just kindly tell them. Don't tell them to go to, you know, heck. I'm trying not to swear now. Be nice. Say, hey, I really appreciate you reaching out to me. That's super kind of you. But I kind of don't want to think about my sister right now. So, you know, maybe check in with me in a month and I'll have other things to say or something along those lines. Because I see a lot of people as they're going through grief will just blast people who are trying to help, and that just pushes people away. So you're not doing anyone any favors by doing that as you're going through grief. I understand the feelings. And maybe you do that once. Maybe you, you blast somebody and be like, look, stop tr- reaching out for help. I don't need your help. And then you feel bad. And the next day you reach out and say, sorry for lashing out at you. It's part of my grief process. I do appreciate you helping but honestly, I don't really need that sort of help right now. You know, you can make up for it later. All of us would benefit if we had a more advanced understanding and practice around grief. And we just don't in my society. And we have a long way to go. All right. Well, I think that is enough emails for today. Everyone out there, let me know what you think. Comment below if you're on YouTube about what I am talking about. Contrary to some people's beliefs, I do read the comments. I just don't always reply. But I do read. I am interested. I'm genuinely interested. I'm always interested. (laughs) Go to the contact page or the contact button on our website, and there should be a link below. And, you know, directly email me. I read every single email. I try to reply to everybody as well. These uh, emails that I'm responding to are because people went to the website and emailed me through there. And you got to make sure you do that because I ask a bunch of important questions on that form that I need to know. So don't, you know, try not to email directly, even if you know our email addresses from the past. Anyway, um, talked about a lot of things today. Talked about adaptability, co-parenting, assertiveness, giving space, validation, trauma, parenting, home records, cheating, and grief. I feel like we hit a lot of bases, maybe a record number of bases for one of these emails. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 